Bibles to the second chapter of the book of James. This morning's preaching portion is verses 1 through 13 of James chapter 2, which is actually half of the theme of James chapter 2, which comes to us as a whole, speaking of the importance of being doers of the word, which in some ways might be a theme of James's whole letter. This morning is the 11th sermon in a series, and we're exactly halfway through the series. And it is interesting, I may have mentioned this last Sunday, that the first, the first half of James comes in James chapter 1. And the second half of James, which functions like kind of like a, a, a highlights reel of everything we get in the letter of James, and then chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5 wind up expounding and amplifying through about... 10 to 12 different stories or lessons or warnings, everything that James has covered in James chapter 1. And so a good reader of James will look in, in James 2 through 5 for themes that have been mentioned in James chapter 1. And if you read your Bible with a pencil or a pen or even colored pens, you could circle words and ideas that show up in James chapter 1 and then explore and see how those words show up again in the rest of the letter. And you so your understanding of God's Word will grow. Of course, I'm doing that in my own study, and I don't always expound and explain all the connections that are there, but I'm assuming that as good hearers of the Word, which James calls us to be, that you are reading and studying this on your own. As we dive in this morning, I'd like to begin with a story from the animal kingdom. Many animals you probably know, try to blend into their surroundings in order to escape detection and being food for another beast. I think of a chameleon, for example. On the other hand, some creatures are designed to boldly stand out. Take a male cardinal. Compared to his female counterpart, he's a bold, bright red. In fact, many male birds are the showier of the two sexes, speaking of God having a sense of humor. I think this is part of our Lord's creative and wise design. Not only is it beautiful, but it promotes reproduction of species. And using this as an analogy, it wouldn't be hard to conclude that it would be foolish for a male bird to try to blend in almost as foolish as it would be for a chameleon to try to stand out. The moral of the story is you need to know your purpose and your environment. And this clearly is a lesson that Christians need to learn. All too often, we forget our purpose and ignore our environment. James writes to believers who live in a world that is hostile to faith. And this requires a creative combination of blending in and standing out. Something like what Jesus said, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Specifically in today's text, 
James shows you that you should boldly stand out in the way you think and act, think about and act towards other people. James strongly warns against committing what he calls the sin of favoritism. It's an interesting word in Greek. It actually means regarding the face. Appearances can be deceiving. James says, nothing undermines your faith and God's church more quickly and more radically than committing the sin of favoritism. Think about the opposite. What a remarkable testimony. What a beautiful thing it is when brothers and sisters who are quite different in many ways, to quote David in the psalm, dwell together in unity. What a blessing. This requires Christians to not use your own judgment when engaging with other people, at least not initially, and certainly not as the final word. But it requires you to use the judgment of the Lord in as much as you have access to it. And by the way, you often don't. God's judgments are often secret and hidden. They're opaque to human penetration. And therefore, James in our passage this morning commends the virtues of love and mercy instead of judgment. So I hope to show you this morning is, my title is Living Like Heirs of the Kingdom. To live like an heir of the kingdom, you need to both avoid favoritism and model, actively model, love and mercy in all of your relationships, particularly in the church. For this morning's sermon, my, the, the form I'm going to follow, in case you're trying to follow, is I'm going to read the passage first. It's 13 verses, so it's a little long, and there's a lot in here. Because there's so much, I'm going to go verse by verse through the passage as my first point and explain it, offering commentary as I go. And after I explain the passage, I'm then going to make two or three observations of, of lessons that I think you need to learn from this morning's text. And we'll end with some applications. Let's then give our attention to the reading of God's holy word, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? 
and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So, Speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment without mercy is shown to one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. O Lord, Spare us from the sins about which we read in this text. Forgive us as a church, this church, and the Christian church across the state and the country and around the world for all the ways in which we have so violated this text. Thank you that mercy triumphs over judgment. So it's in the hope of mercy that we listen this morning and seek to learn and to apply that we might be the people of your treasured possession, the people you have called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. An overview of the text. The passage I just read commands that Christians show no partiality as we, quote, hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, comma, the Lord of glory, or as some of your translations may put it, as we hold the faith of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. The faith of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, verse 1 of our text, is simply another way of James describing what he says in verse 26 and 27 of chapter 1. True religion. True religion in the sight of God James 1.27, is to hold the faith of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So we see James already linking the end of chapter 1 and this important teaching in chapter 2. We also have, then, a concrete example, different but related to the examples he gives at the end of chapter 1 to care for orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. 
Here's another way that we show true religion. By refusing all instances, as much as humanly possible, of the sin of favoritism. The faith of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ requires that you judge people in your life according to the faith of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That says a lot of things. It means that Jesus' standard for people ought to be yours, among other things. It means that he's the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, and so your standards are a far, far distant second compared to his glorious standards. I believe this reference to the glorious Lord Jesus Christ tells us that Jesus is God because God's glory rests upon him in a unique and permanent fashion. The glorious Lord Jesus Christ has given us a faith, which is to say there is There are things you are to believe about this person. I've shared some of them already. You should also feel a certain way towards him. Affection and loyalty and determination to follow him. Honor and reverence and obedience. If you love me, he said, keep my commandments. So the faith of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ means that you're holding on to a standard for your human relationships and you're holding on to it in a way that you refuse to let go and allow worldly human standards to penetrate your mind and your evaluations of the people and circumstances around you. So he introduces in verse 1 his primary concern, which is that Jesus' church is holding fast to the glorious Lord Jesus Christ and the faith which he embodies in his life, death, and resurrection. Put it another way, the Christian church preeminently ought to be Christian, Christ's, and not a human gathering in which the haves lorded over the have-nots or the good ones look down on the bad ones. You know, if that's what the church is about, James is saying, you're not holding on to the faith. And many people today don't come to Christian gatherings for this reason. And it starts at the desk that I stand behind. You're not here to hear my opinions as insightful as they may be on world politics, controversial matters, or movies. You're here to hear from the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't know me very well, I have a lot to say about a lot of things. And some Sundays it is difficult to limit myself to the faith of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. But He's the Lord of glory. And I must do that. So after introducing his major concern, holding the faith of the Lord Jesus, who is the glorious Lord in your human relationships, he gives in verses 2-7 through a hypothetical illustration of what he's talking about. 
the sin of partiality. Here's how one commentator summarizes it. It's helpful. I'm going to share it with you. It's a quote. Into the church meeting come two strangers. That they are strangers is evident based on the fact that they don't know where to sit and they need one of the members, we'll say an usher, a greeter, to help him find a place. One stranger has all the trappings of wealth and gets ushered to a seat, while the other, a poor man, has to stand or at best to squat on a stool. And we will wonder why the situation has developed in this way. James explains the reason. One looks important and the other doesn't. Now I say a hypothetical example because James tells this story in these verses with a series of four if statements. Take a look. Two if statements in verse 2. Two if statements in verse 3. If this happens, and if this happens, and if this happens, and if this happens. The if statements are important because James is too practical and wise to suggest that there's some sort of a blanket priority that, say, a poor person or the amount in your bank account has over another person, say, a rich person. There are certainly cases and occasions where someone of importance in the church gets priority over others. You're listening to me. You may choose to stop doing that at any point. But I and the elders of this church and most of you believe God has called me to this place to do something. And that's an important job. In this very limited sense, the listener is of less importance than the speaker when it comes to preaching. But I've said it many times. Good listeners make good preachers. And good preachers make good listeners. And while you may not say good sermon every week because it isn't a good sermon every week and maybe not for you every week, you have no idea how I depend as a man on your encouragement and exhortation to do this important work. No, James recognizes that there are distinctions to be made in the church. They are real, and they must be accounted for in all kinds of situations and on various occasions. The problem, which becomes clear with the if statements, is when you make these distinctions without beginning and ending with what I have discussed already, the glory of Jesus Christ and holding to the faith of that glorious Lord. That's when your distinctions become sin. The sin of partiality or favoritism. James says in verse 4 that you have judged with evil intent. So beginning in verse 5 as we walk through this passage, James turns from the hypothetical case to speak directly to you and me. In case you don't see why this sin is so wrong, in verse 5, James begins to provide a theological or God-centered explanation as to why favoritism is such a crime. God has chosen the things and the people of the world 
which the world has rejected, to embody Himself. That's what He says in verse 5. Precisely the ones that you and your human estimation have determined are unimportant, little children, sinners, God and His wisdom have determined are supremely important. This is the salvation pattern of the Bible. And so James reminds his initial readers, and of course you and me as well today, of this salvation pattern. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? That's where I get my title, living as heirs of the kingdom. Heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those he loves. So after reminding us of his salvation pattern in verses 6 or 7, he asks three hypothetical questions. Why are you using these worldly standards as you're evaluating people, particularly in this case of rich and poor? Aren't the rich the ones that are oppressing you or people like them? Aren't these rich guys, these important people, the ones who are dragging you to court because you're in their debt and they care not a whit for your welfare or your well-being? And by the way, aren't these the ones at their sophisticated parties who blaspheme the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and mock you for being a Christian? The very name that was placed over you when you were called by God and baptized and set apart as His precious child? Why are you catering to them? So while his hypothetical example centers on rich versus poor favoritism, James makes it clear in verse 8 that you should be concerned about mistreatment of anyone under any circumstances. If you fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, here he quotes Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Who is my neighbor? Jesus was asked. He told a beautiful story. Parents or children, maybe you could read it this afternoon, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. James makes it clear that you should be concerned about the mistreatment of anyone. God's standard or his norm is summarized with this phrase, fulfilling the royal law. Living up to this standard is doing well, according to James. And failure, verse 9, is to sin and become a lawbreaker. James's point is the things that the world uses to honor men, the world's norms for fame and fortune, beauty and goodness, popularity, power, society's fallen value system in all of its parts should not find its way into the church of Jesus Christ. Now, some of the people I need to be speaking to aren't here because they're sick of it. But for those who are hearing, we need to hear this lesson. 
God's standard is that we honor him first and foremost, no matter our status or the status of those around us. Now, there is a kind of warning here. Some would say more than just a little bit of a warning, but I think that may be over-torquing this passage. There's kind of a warning for those who are materially wealthy. There's something about having lots of stuff and plenty of money that makes faith difficult. The godly have always been warned about excessive wealth. 1 Timothy 6, Proverbs 30. Jesus warns about the dangers of wealth almost more than any other danger in the Gospels and in His teaching. How hard, He said, after the rich young ruler walked away with his head hanging unjustified. How hard, He said, is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Remember the vivid illustration which is not a little passageway in, in the Middle East between two narrow cliffs. The eye of the needle is a needle that fits only a thread. And Jesus is making a joke. A camel can't possibly go through an eye of a needle. Paul also said, not many rich and not many who are noble will enter the kingdom of God. He didn't say not any. But he said, not many. We need to add, though, that there's probably almost as many poor unbelievers as there are rich. For they also have their sights on earthly wealth almost as much as the rich guy. The Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's everything, applies equally to the rich and to the poor. Perhaps this may be even harder for the poor, for poor Christians who are constantly trying to keep up with the Joneses or whatever your neighbor's last name may be. Rather than trusting the God who provides all things, we quickly fall into idolatry, which is an equal opportunity employer. So to wrap up our summary and to get back to the text, the second part of the passage, starting with verse 10, establishes the central means by which we hold to God's glorious standard. We keep the law. We obey God's word. That's how we keep out the worldly norms. We avoid the worldly norms by pushing play on God's norms. We run His program that guides our actions and our thoughts and our feelings especially. Partiality and favoritism have no place in the Word of God. You can't read it and find it unless it's being judged and exposed for the evil that it is. Only by constantly immersing ourselves in the Scriptures, God's holy Word, the law of liberty, James calls it, the royal law, can you hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ of glory in a confusing and hostile world where standards are ever-changing. Good luck keeping up with the latest standards, for example, on what is and is an appropriate speech. And a world who is hostile, centered on man and not God. James ends this passage with a closing 
summary command in verse 12. Take a look at it. Speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And then he shares two little sayings or proverbs in verse 13. Judgment without mercy is shown to the one who has shown no mercy. That's the first one. And the second one, which just ends with the ringing, sort of a symbol clash. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, I told you, it's a huge text. It's overwhelming. In some ways, this is a, a tunnel to every important teaching of Scripture. Love God and love your neighbor. So what are some lessons that I think you need to learn this morning that I think God wants to teach our church? Number one lesson is the gateway to the kingdom for heirs of the kingdom looks like a cross. If you're an heir to the kingdom, you're inheriting the kingdom. It's because the true heir is named Jesus and he has gone ahead of you. You've not come into your inheritance because you're good-looking or smart or wealthy or accomplished or educated or even religious. He is the Son of Man. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He laid His life down for the sheep. He is the one who takes up His cross so that you might not suffer and bear the crushing weight of the wrath of God. He is the one who, instead of showing you God's glorious justice, it's in Christ that mercy triumphs over judgment. He shows you mercy. But it isn't even that. He shows you both. Romans 3.26, He is both the just and the justifier of him who has faith in Jesus. Yes, the judgment is, is received full force, unabated, undiluted, on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Justice of God is not set aside in this program of redemption. It's just set aside for you. You receive mercy. Instead of punishment, you're shown grace. And so the doorway to the kingdom for heirs of the kingdom is shaped like a cross. It's not just decoration. It's a lifestyle. It's a way of thinking and living and acting in gratitude. This is how we hold the faith of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ is we cling to the cross. We hide behind the cross. We lead with it. I love this, Galatians 2, 19 and 20. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Love this verse. It's Christ who lives in me. In the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave Himself for me. That's the church that I fell in love with. And that's the church that we need to aspire to be. 
The second lesson here is that the law of the kingdom is the law of Jesus. I preached actually extensively on this. I did a a three-sermon series on the law several years ago when preaching through the Beatitudes. I will refer you to that. But briefly here, the the second lesson God wants you to learn this morning is that the law of the kingdom is the law of Jesus the Messiah. You see, the way that the king expresses or enacts his authority or power in his realm These norms or standards are called laws. James is picking up on his earlier discussion of the word in James 1.18, in James 1.19, in James 1.21, in James 1.22-25, all of which mention the central place of the word in the believer's life, including be quick to hear the word, James 1.19. He's picking up on this. And he's saying the royal law is the law that comes from the Messiah, This is a huge stumbling block for some. The glorious Lord Jesus Christ, that title in James 2.1, absolutely and unequivocally proves that you cannot read the Bible apart from the lens of Christ. His law is the law of the kingdom. And by the way, He came not to abolish any of it. That's the starters. There's no editing out this law. But he came to fulfill it. And something about the way in which Jesus fulfills the law in his holy person fundamentally alters the way we read the law itself. Great scholar, Chung, Luke Chung puts it this way, the messianically renewed people of God are those who have been baptized into Christ's name, who belong to Christ, who are heirs of the kingdom, and live by his law. This is a law of liberty. You know, every single thing Jesus did was to preach the kingdom of God. That's his law. Every sermon is the law of the kingdom, a sermon of Jesus. But then Jesus specifically taught about the Torah and how to interpret it. He gave you rules for interpretation throughout the Gospels, but I'll commend specifically Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 19. This royal law also, I believe, suggests what Jesus exemplified about law-keeping. For example, he He didn't keep the Sabbath because he was too busy loving people. He didn't delete the fourth commandment, but we read it through Christ. Do you see what I'm saying? And of course, what else did he do on the cross? But preach the law of love as he hung there, bleeding and dying for your and my sin. And so the royal law is the law we live by. It's the law of Christ. And because it is Christ's law, it is a law of liberty because He says, come unto Me, all you who are burdened by the soul-crushing law of man in all of your religious gatherings which celebrate the accomplishments of man. Come unto Me. Leave that stuff behind. 
and I will give you rest, for my law is easy and my burden is light. The third lesson is the world has no clue what the mercy of God and the love of Christ is like. Jesus twice quotes Hosea 6.6 in his gospel, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's Matthew 9.13 and Matthew 12.7. Jesus tells the Pharisees that love, justice, and mercy are the weightier matters of the law. Tithing, that's, that's good. Keep, keep tithing. We've got to keep the thing running. But the weightier matters of the law are love and justice and mercy. Keeping the Sabbath, as I've already mentioned, is subordinated to showing mercy. And the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18 prioritizes mercy even over the collecting of debts. The servant who lives under the mercy of the king should share and show that mercy to others. What about the parable of the sheep and the goats? It shows the need for mercy in all of our dealings because you don't know who you're dealing with. When did we care for you? When did we love you? When did we feed you? When did we clothe you? I had no idea. Well, that's the point, isn't it? You're not God. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Clearly, the world is completely clueless when it comes to this sort of ethic. Oh, we get glimpses of it here and there in pop music and on in TV shows and heart-wrenching biographies and documentaries we see little glimpses of it but this is our entire reality as christians mercy and love this is who we are so first corinthians paul calls the gospel foolishness in the vision and sight of the world it's weakness to the strong but to those who believe it is the power of god so the weapons of our warfare, 2 Corinthians 10.4, are not carnal. They're not fleshly. They're mighty through God for the tearing down of strongholds. You see, love and mercy have this completely beautiful, destructive effect on people. It leaves them speechless. So while material poverty is the central theme of the analogy James provides, he is speaking in verse 5 to all who love Christ, whether you be rich or poor. Three lessons. As I conclude this morning, I want to point out that in the early church, the first followers of Jesus were very unique, and as a result, they attracted plenty of attention. And the outsiders to the faith in the first century, particularly in, in Acts and Jerusalem, were strangely drawn to the Christian fellowship. There was a, an attraction to it. It's like uh, moths to the flame. But like a moth that gets closer and closer to the flame, he feels the heat. So the, the outsiders in the, in, the, in the early church, those who are outside the faith, were both drawn to the church and repulsed by it. They were attracted 
and they loved it, and they feared it. He was radical. What's also clear is that while the early Christians understood their need to blend in at times, the first Christians also knew when to be bold. Who are these guys? They're talking like madmen. They were bold. So bold. As in the early church, healthy congregations today will stand out in the way we live together. We will draw people by this counterintuitive, attractive, repulsive thing. Our witness will require a sense of risk on your part, however, to upend conventions and traditions and practices which have no place in the church of Jesus Christ. You need to own the church as your own and, and represent Christ in all of your dealings, even here, especially here. That's what James is saying. The cross is a terrifying thing, you see, but the terror of the cross pales in comparison to its sweetness and beauty for those who hold the faith of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Because the cross isn't the end of the story. So four brief action steps as I end this morning. Number one, I want to challenge you all to love and live the law. It is a law of freedom and it's worth your careful study and memorization. Two, if you're not a believer or you're hanging on the edge, enter fully into the faith of Christ. There is no kingdom without our king. It is him you serve. Put on the faith of Christ and stop playing around with cheap substitutes. Number three, I want mercy to be the theme of Mercy Hill. Mercy. Should be your life's theme. The love and the mercy of Christ. Too often people who read the law of Jesus miss these weightier truths and we get stuck in the details. They are important. But they can't let us take our eyes off the main thing. Mercy. And finally, we need to strive to implement God's standards in this church. I want you to give some careful thought as to how well you are doing in avoiding this sin of partiality. I'd like you to think about how well I am doing as well. And I'd like you to tell me. Discrimination based on worldly standards of wealth or any other thing must be avoided. For instance, what if someone is a guest but doesn't have young children in this church, or their children are grown or out of the house. Ladies, are you going to speak to that person? Men, are they important? You know, when you age and your children move on, one of the main ways of connecting with people in the church goes away. It's difficult to make friends. Is there partiality there? What if you're unmarried or divorced? Are you judged in this church because of your marital status, even subtly? What about coming from a non-reformed background? I love this one. Reformed. What's reformed? Well, you don't need to worry about it. If that's you, 
I'm not talking to you. But if you're not a Presbyterian and Reformed, and you meet someone who's, say, a Roman Catholic or Calvary Chapel or Methodist, agnostic, how do you treat them? What about people from different cultural backgrounds than your own? Someone whose first language is in English. Someone who's an immigrant. Do you have any idea what it's like to be an immigrant? It's not easy. These are the problems that today's passage of Scripture brings before your attention. May God have mercy on us as a church as we seek to hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And thank God that mercy triumphs over judgment. Let us pray. Father, thank you for sending your Son to die for our sins. Thank you that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That the most important thing that someone needs to know about me and all of us is that we are Christians. We are Christ's. So I pray that you would revive and renew this church, the New Jersey Presbytery of the PCA, all faithful, godly, God-honoring churches in Glassboro and in Gloucester County. Stop, silence the mouths of the false preachers. Shut the doors of assemblies of man. And may your church, your true people, may it be seen for what it is, the body of Christ, and the people of the glorious Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.